As a boy, I remember watching a TV show with the host Art Linkletter, and the title of the show was Kids Say the Darndest Things. Remember that show? Um, I went online and found some quotations from one of the old shows. They asked the question, what are some of the most important lessons that you have learned in your life, in your entire life? Now, the kids are six, seven, eight years old. And here are some of their responses, most important lessons of life. One boy said, no matter how hard you try, you can't baptize a cat. (laughs) A little girl said, when your mom is mad at your dad, don't let her brush your hair. (laughs) A boy said, if your sister hits you, don't hit her back. They always catch the second one. Puppies still have bad breath, even after drinking mouthwash, one of the kids said. I know, that sounds horrible. Today, if you did that, you would be in big trouble. Here's one that I remember uh, personally. Lunch, school lunches stick to the wall. <laughs> but my favorite is this. The best place to be when you are sad is grandma's lap. That's a great lesson to learn. What would the Bible say are some of the most important lessons that kids should learn? Well, I have on the screen for you what I think some of the most important lessons would be, and it comes from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. This is the New Living Translation, which puts it this way. Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, for this is the right thing to do. Honor your father and mother. This is the first of the Ten Commandments. It ends with a promise, and this is the promise. If you honor your father and mother... You will live a long life full of blessing. Paul wrote the book of Colossians at the same time from the same prison with many of the same themes. In Colossians 3 in verse 20, we read these words, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. This wonderful, rich teaching of the Apostle Paul focuses on the fact that life is made up of relationships. When you look at the book of Ephesians, it starts out in the first three chapters telling us who we are in Christ, and then the last three chapters, how we ought to live because we are in Christ. The first three chapters were seated with Christ in the heavenly places. His righteousness is ours. All of these wonderful riches have come by mercy and grace through faith. We're his children. And then the last three chapters, now walk worthy of your calling. In every command or in every section where he talks about the worthy walk, he's talking about relationships. First of all, relationships in the church. We're members one of another. So speak the truth in love. He talks about the home, the relationship between husband and wife. Now he's talking about the relationship between parents and kids. He's going to talk about the relationship outside of the home, in the workplace, and ultimately the relationship we have when we fight the powers of evil around us and we must don the armor of God. Life is all about relationships. 
And when you are in Christ, you want to live in such a way that all your relationships are centered on your king and flow and connect for his glory. So that's what the Apostle Paul is really concerned about, that the parents and children, children to parents, that will get it right. And so what is right? Well, he starts out with a command aimed at the kids, and the command is simply obey. The word obey means to learn under. It's the idea that there is an authoritative figure who has the right to give you direction as well as instruction. And parents are the people in that place over their kids. Literally, parents take the place of God. It doesn't mean that God is gone. It means that God has chosen these parents to stand in his place over the kids with authority so that during their uh, young years, submission to parents equals submission to God. Obey your parents because you belong to the Lord. Now, he may be talking to Christian kids, or he may just be talking to all kids who need to remember that we're made by God. And because God is our creator, we belong to him. If you're a Christian, God owns you because he made you and he redeemed you. And we could even go a step further. He inhabits you. If you're not a believer, God still owns you because he made you. And therefore, you belong to him. You don't live a life unto yourself. And you must one day give an account to the one who has made you. So obey your parents because you belong to the Lord. In Western society, we have demonstrated that to sow the wind of rejecting biblical teaching will definitely reap the whirlwind of family disintegration. So said Sinclair Ferguson. And we see that in our culture today, where we have neglected God as creator, we have rejected God's word as reliable and true, and what we want is freedom from all rules, which means anything goes, and there's no stopping it, unless we come back to the truth that is always truth, the mega truth, the truth from God himself. And here's the God who gives us one of the most important life lessons we can ever learn or ever share with our kids or instill in our grandkids. Obey your parents because you belong to the Lord. Now the person who displayed this in his young life so well is Jesus Christ. What a unique situation, right? Uh, the Bible tells us in the gospel account uh, about the birth of Christ. We read about that in the gospel of Matthew and the gospel of Mark. We read in the Old Testament that the Messiah was predicted to come and even how he would come, born of a virgin, Isaiah says. And that's exactly what happened. We celebrate that at Christmas. And then at eight days old, Jesus was taken into the temple and an offering was made according to the Levitical law and Christ was named. But then we hear nothing about the life of Christ from eight days old to 12 years old, nothing. Our imaginations run wild. We want to 
uh, think about how he lived, but this much we know. He was a normal kid, yet he never sinned. Normal kid I get, never sinning, I don't get. How can a kid be normal and never sin? I don't know how, but he did for 12 years. Now, there are some books that are written, extra biblical books, called the pseudepigrapha. Pseudo means false, graphe writing, the pseudo writings that claim to be authoritative but are not. And they give us stories about the young life of Jesus. Fear, mere fiction, that's all it is. Pure imagination. But the Bible tells us one thing about Christ's young life, and that's when he got lost at the temple age 12. This is Luke chapter 2. So the family went down to Jerusalem, most likely for the bar mitzvah of Christ, because he was age 12. We don't know if Jesus ever had been back to Jerusalem since the day when he was named. But now he goes with his family, and the scriptures tell us that the family after being there for the festival, left to go back to Nazareth, and they left Jesus in the temple alone. Remember that story? Now, lest you become too harsh and critical of Mary and Joseph, have you ever left your kids anywhere? Like the last rest stop on a vacation? Where are the kids? (laughs) Or maybe coming to church. You sit in the pew and look, and they're not here. Well, that's what happened to Mary and Joseph. And to give them a little bit of defense, they probably traveled with a large group, a caravan for protection, for fellowship. And it's possible, like it happens with us, if we have a big family and you've got aunts and uncles, you know, where are the kids? They're with aunt so-and-so. And and so you're fine as long as you hear that. And that's probably what they heard because they took a whole day's journey from Jerusalem back to Nazareth and then camping for the night said, where's Jesus? Oh, no, we left him. So it took another day to get back, probably a day to find him, and they finally find him, and they probably scold him a little bit. Where have you been? Which is what parents do when they realize they're wrong, but they want the kids to think that they're the ones who caused the problem. And Jesus said, don't you remember? (laughs) Don't you recall I must be about my father's business? Remember the birth? (laughs) Remember how unusual that was, the stories you've told me, the way it happened? This is going to be an unusual journey, Mom. And we're going to have some times like this. You've got to remember, I must be about my father's business. However he did it, it it was without sin. And then we read these words in verse 51. Then Jesus went down with Mary and Joseph and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. (laughs) The one who has all authority one day. The one who has always existed forever. Comes into the world as a young baby and lives a young life and subjects himself to his parents. If Jesus has to, I think the rest of us do too. Perfect example coming from Christ. So that's the command. But along with it, there is motivation. A reason is given, actually two. This is why you need to obey the command. It is right. And by obeying your parents, there is a promise given to you. So he ends verse 1 with these words that this is the right 
thing to do. It is right. It is right because God says it's right. And when God says something is right, the debate ends. I used to hear people say, God said it, I believe it, you know, therefore it's true. Take the I believe it out of the equation. If God said it, it's true. I hope you believe it, but it's true. And even natural law teaches us, doesn't it? That kids should follow and obey their parents. You see it in the animal kingdom. Natural law demonstrates it. God declares it. And then the moral law enforces it. For in verse 2, we read these words. Honor your father and mother. This is the first of the Ten Commandments that ends with a promise. By the way, it's the only one of the ten that has a promise. And here's the promise. If you honor your father and mother, you will live a long life full of blessing. So what's the motive for me to obey my parents? It's the right thing to do, and it has a promise connected with it. God rewards those who obey. There is rich blessing. Now, this is taken from the Ten Commandments, and I like the way that the New Living Translation brings that out, reminds us that this is It's actually the fifth command of the ten, but it's the first one that has a promise connected to it. However, the promise is not an ironclad guarantee. Now, that may shock you, but you need to understand that when you're reading poetry, there there are certain laws of poetry. The genre carries with it certain principles. When you're reading poetry, Proverbs and maxims, you've got to be careful that you don't absolutize them to the place where they become untrue. A proverb is a proverb because it almost always happens, but it doesn't mean that it has to always happen to be true. Are you following me? Because when you read this verse, it says, if you honor your parents, you'll live a long life. What about those little kids that died in a horrible accident? in a tragic fire. Maybe weren't even old enough to show much disobedience or were kids that appeared to be perfect. You say God's word is not true. No, God's word is true, but this is a proverb. And you have to understand that. So the word honor is broader than the word obey. Honor your father and your mother. You might obey someone that you don't respect, but parents need to have both obedience and respect, this is God's will. And I also think it's pretty amazing that Paul uses the moral law law of God to motivate Christians in the age of grace. Some of you have mistakenly thought that because Paul said we're not under the law, that the law of God is bad. But it's not. He says in Romans, the law of God is good, it's moral, it's perfect. But the moral law of God was not given to save us. It was given to show us we need salvation. It was given to show us how weak and sinful we are. That's what the Ten Commandments do. They cannot save you. But once saved, they're a wonderful guide to gospel living, Paul says. The moral law motivates. The Decalogue, by way of implication, is still applicable to us today. We are free from the law as a way to secure eternal life, but we're not free from the law as a way to govern our Christian lives 
to guide our Christian lives. And so the moral law of God reflected in the Ten Commandments still has bearing upon us today. And Paul brings that out most clearly. There's a promise if you obey. And there's blessing with it. So Paul gives a command and then he gives a reason or motivation to follow the command. This is right. There is a promise. But then he has a word of caution. As he does in all of these relationships, husbands and wives, masters and slaves, and now here parents and children, there is a caution to those who have some degree of authority lest they abuse the authority. The warning is to parents. Now, it uses the word fathers, but I'm sure the mother is implied as well, as mentioned in verse 1. Of course, in that day, the father given authority sometimes had more authority, maybe even than he should have. In a patriarchal society, there was, in the Latin word, a word that literally meant father power. Some saw it as negative. Many of the fathers saw it as extremely positive. I'm in control. But because of that, there were great abuses. So he says in verse 4, now word to fathers, don't make your children angry by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction approved by God. Don't provoke your kids. Don't lead them to resentment, wrath. Don't so rule your kids that they lose hope and they lose life. And unfortunately, this is stated in such a way because fathers are the ones that often abuse this. And it is indeed common in our world today. Sometimes parents lament the fact that their kids aren't following the Lord, and if they were honest, the parents would say, but a large part of the blame goes to me because I didn't create an environment, both in my life and my words, that would encourage obedience. What are some of the bad attitudes a father can have? Indifference? Indifference to the kids? Favoritism? Cruelty? or abuse, resentment. I wish I didn't have you kids. Or hypocrisy, say one thing and live another. It's interesting that God has so designed the home to be an intimate living relationship where the most powerful lessons of life could be seen as well as powerfully the most difficult and bad examples. There is power in the good example. There is power in the bad example because of the intimacy of it all. So he said, don't make your children angry. Don't drive them away. Children are to be respected, not exploited. They are image of God, just like you. Don't crush them. Treasure them. Proverbs 127, this is a blessing from God. A domineering spirit is not a divine instrument for creating grace in a person's life. A child who learns from their environment, if they live in a critical world because of their parents, they too will condemn and find fault with others. 
They might doubt their own judgment and discredit their own potential and distrust the intentions of everyone else if they grow up in that world of criticism. If they live with hostility, they'll learn to fight. If they live with ridicule, they'll learn to be withdrawn. But if they live with encouragement, just maybe they'll learn confidence. Sometimes fathers are too strict, sometimes too lenient, often too inconsistent. The father's a tyrant, loveless, and hypocritical. In that situation, what's going to happen to the kids? Now, it's no guarantee that, as I said, if you parent properly, that your kids will grow up to be sterling examples of people of faith because each child indeed is a free moral agent and make their own decisions. Just like sometimes parents do a lousy job, but their kids turned out great, and that's because of grace. But I often hear the parents taking you know, the credit. If there's any credit that anything, if there's any credit of, of proper training and proper parenting, you better give God all the glory. Now, he says a rather here, a comparison. Don't do this, but do do this. Rather, bring them up in the discipline and instruction that is approved by the Lord. Three words the apostle uses. The first is the word nourish, translated in the NIV, bring them up. This idea is the whole idea of rearing to maturity. By the way, it was used in chapter 5 and verse 29. Same word. No one's ever hated their own flesh, but they nourish it and care for it. And so we are to care for our children in the same loving way. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul gives a rich analogy from the spiritual realm when he took the gospel to the city of Thessalonica. He said, this was our manner among you. We were like a mother gentle, caring, nourishing her children. And here forever is declared, not the exclusive and only job of the mom, but the job that only a mom can do so well, this nourishing of her own brood, and to do it gently. A few verses later, Paul says in verse 11, also know that we dealt with you like a father deals with his own children, encouraging comforting, urging. And again, this is not all a father should do, but this indeed is an important role and responsibility to be the one who encourages and comforts and helps urge people to go forward in the faith. So that's what parents are to do, to nourish. Secondly, there is the positive sense of correction. This is the word training in the NIV. And it comes from the word where we get the English word pedagogy. It's the idea of tutoring. It's instruction with correction when needed. In fact, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, that's exactly what a loving parent does. The correction is not always because a child's done something bad, but there is the discipline, the forcing of proper behavior. In fact, Hebrews 12 says, where there is the absence of discipline, there is the absence of love. And if a parent can't say no to their kids, it's not because they love them too much, it's because they love them too little. In 1950, an American Episcopal clergyman passed away 
His name was James Jefferson Hall, and he was called the Bishop of Wall Street because he used to go down to Wall Street and at lunchtime preach for an hour. One of the things that he had said in one of his sermons or one of his writings was very catchy. Pastor Hall said, I was brought up at the knee of a godly father and over the knee of a determined mother. (laughs) That's a good balance, isn't it? Love and discipline. And there they were. That's what Paul is saying. The third word that Paul uses is instruction. That is to place truth in the mind. And it's the truth of God. Train up a child in the way that they should go. And when they are old, they'll not depart from it. A proverb. And faithfully instruct and place in their young hearts and minds truth. That's why what this church does in the realm of children's ministry is so great. You say it's the responsibility of the parents. Yeah, but if parents are smart, they'll co-labor with the church. We can't do it for you, but we want to do it with you. And we have some wonderful people who are committed to helping your kids grow. Vacation Bible school, be involved, pray. Children's ministry, be involved, pray. You say, I don't have any kids. Adopt some. Maybe literally, but adopt some in the church. Become a mom or a grandmom to some of the kids who need another parental voice saying amen to what the parents are trying to do at home. Train up a child in the way that they should go. That's what Paul is saying. Instruct them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Many years ago, sociologists Sheldon and Eleanor Gluck were working at Harvard University studying the development of juvenile delinquency. And they developed a test, became rather famous, because it was 90% accurate. In other words, they could look at kids five and six years old and with this test determine if the kids would become delinquents. 90% right. In that test, they revealed these four interesting observations. And these aren't Christians. At least I don't think they are. Here are the four factors that will prevent delinquency. Number one, father's discipline must be firm, fair, and consistent. Number two, the mother must know what the kids are doing all the time and be with them as much as possible. I mean, right away, there's the implication that there is a mother and dad, right? So different in our world today. Three, children must see affection demonstrated between the parents and toward the kids. Affection, true love. Now, if you don't love your spouse, you can hide it, but the kids will see it, and it will help destroy them. And the fourth thing is, family must spend time together as a unit. That's powerful. The spiritual nourishment of kids truly lies in the hands of their parents who stand in that loke day, the loco day, the place of God over the lives by God's decree. What a wonderful privilege. What an awesome responsibility. Daniel Webster, years ago, senator, spokesman, orator in our government, ran for presidency. He said this, if we work upon marble, it will perish. 
If we work upon brass, time will efface it. If we rear temples, they will crumble to dust. But if we work upon mortal souls, if we imbue them with principles, with a just fear of God and love for their fellow man, then we engrave on those fleshly tablets something that will brighten all eternity. So South Church has a wonderful opportunity to encourage young families with kids And I want to encourage you parents to persevere in teaching your kids the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It's so vitally, vitally important. And one final thing. Never hold a dustbuster and a cat at the same time. (laughs) Heavenly Father, what awesome truths that can change our church and change our city and change our world. We pray for that transformation. But Lord, we pray for the grace and strength and wisdom to practice this in our own families. And we who no longer have young kids or maybe never had kids will do all we can to encourage these young families in this most important of all tasks. May we repopulate the world with images of God that look like Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.